Gerrymandering is a very now political reform issue, not because it's new, not because it's worse than ever, not because the avenues for achieving this reform are any more available than they ever were. It's just that there's a greater level of awareness. Competitive seats will promote more moderate, pragmatic, compromise-seeking people to run and to win. It does also mean that if we have lots more competitive seats, that politicians are going to spend more time campaigning. They're going to have to spend more time raising money. One of the unforeseen consequences of success at getting more and more independent district commissions in place is that there's going to be even more money in elections. I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities of tomorrow. Applied Political Philosophy. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. In this episode, we're looking at a very hot topic in political reform circles right now, gerrymandering. We'll begin with an interview that covers the basics of this problem and explores the potential for political reform in this area. Gerrymandering. It's a very strange, a frankly very American word. Can you tell me where does this word come from and why does gerrymandering exist in the first place? Yes, it is definitely a very American-sounding word, but in fact, the problem of gerrymandering exists in any democratic system that uses a district-based system of representation. In a district-based system, people represent territories, and in order to figure out what territory people represent, you have to have a map, a political map, a representational map. Who creates that map? If the people who are running and winning in those districts are the people who create the maps, in other words, they draw the lines of their own districts, then you have the problem or the potential for the problem of gerrymandering. The word itself comes from early American history, which is when this first cropped up. One of the things about being the first democratic country in the modern world is that the United States pioneered a lot of the problems that exist throughout democratic systems. Gerrymandering was a result of redistricting that occurred in Massachusetts, which was a political system that was essentially run by this guy, Elbridge Gerry. He was what we could think of as the sort of party boss of early 19th century Massachusetts, and he drew a map that included a district that looked a lot like a salamander. And a newspaper of the day noted that it looked like a salamander, and they called it a gerrymander. That's where the term comes from. Elbridge Gerry was the guy who drew a salamander-shaped district that was intended to favor whatever party it is that he was in charge of. And I don't remember actually which party that was. So that's the origin of the word. The concept comes from the very fact that in a democratic system that uses districts for representation, there's a map. Someone has to draw the map. When the people in charge of the map have an interest in making sure that they win and retain power, you're going to have the problem of gerrymandering. Now, why is gerrymandering such a problem for democracy? And is it actually as much of a problem as its critics claim? That's a good question. Uh, I'll, first, I'll talk about why it's a problem, and then we can assess whether it's as much of a problem as people who dislike it say. It's a problem because when you draw district lines, according to your own plan to maintain political power, you're not really drawing districts that are going to be competitive. In fact, that's the idea. The idea is to create a lack of competitiveness. One of the things that's interesting about gerrymandering is that it can be done in a bipartisan way. There is such a thing as a bipartisan gerrymander. Let's say that the legislative body that's in charge of redrawing the map, let's just say it's the Massachusetts state legislature. Let's say that that legislature has one house controlled by Democrats and the other house controlled by Republicans. Both Republicans and Democrats have an interest in reducing the number of competitive districts because competition is difficult in politics. It costs resources, it costs money, it costs attention and energy. Both parties have an interest in reducing the number of districts that are competitive. 
A bipartisan gerrymander is one where the two parties will essentially split the number of non-competitive districts and create a small number of competitive districts. A bipartisan gerrymander does the same thing that a partisan gerrymander does, which is it tries to reduce the amount of competitiveness. Now, if you control both houses of the legislature, then you can do a partisan gerrymander, which means you're going to do the same exact thing. You're going to reduce competitiveness, but you're going to do, you're going to do it in one direction only, which is to favor your party. So the biggest thing about gerrymandering as a concept is it reduces competitiveness. The number of seats that are actually being fought for will be small, whether it's a partisan or a bipartisan gerrymander. Is it as much of a problem as its critics claim? Well, right there, you could say, well, democracy is supposed to be about competition. And if the system is reducing competition, then that is making it less and less democratic. There are other problems that result from gerrymandering that I think are potentially even more damaging to a democratic system. One of the things that occurs in a gerrymandered district is that the election isn't really competitive, but that doesn't mean there's not competition. We have a party system, and parties nominate their candidates in party primaries. In a gerrymandered district that's safe for one party or the other, the election is the primary. There will be, let's say it's a safe seat for Democrats, there will be a competitive Democratic primary in that election. What you're getting is Democratic voters and hardcore Democratic voters, the ones who will actually vote in a primary, which is usually in the spring, sometimes in the summertime. It's not a time when most Americans are used to voting. The most dedicated partisan voters are going to be the ones who decide the outcome of the party primary. The candidate who appeals to those kinds of voters tends to be more extreme to the left or the right, depending on which uh, party it's a safe seat for. So in a safe Democratic seat, you're going to get a very liberal candidate winning the primary. In a Republican safe seat, you're going to get a very conservative. What this means is that in the general election, that candidate just goes on to win. In the legislature, you're going to now have a lot of candidates, now representatives, who are extreme versions of their own party's viewpoint. And that creates political polarization. In the competitive seats, you're going to have more moderate candidates because the party primaries are going to feature people who are not only looking to appeal to their party's base, but they're trying to win in the general election. So they have to both appeal to the party's base and appeal to the moderate swing voters. In a competitive district, we tend to get, and history bears this out, much more moderate compromise-oriented candidates. So the interesting thing is, is that when you have a gerrymandered system, in the legislature, you're going to end up with really four kinds of elected officials. Far-left Democrats, far-right Republicans, moderate Democrats, and moderate Republicans. That makes it much more difficult for politicians to come together to solve problems. And let's just say that one of those or the other parties has a majority in the legislature, which they will. Let's say it's the Democratic Party that has the majority. There is not a unified Democratic Party. There are the far-left liberals who come from the safe seats, and there are the moderates who come from the swing seats. They won't necessarily agree or be able to come together in a unified way on policy. So not only does gerrymandering promote more political polarization because it gives us these extremists from this high number of safe seats that get gerrymandered in, it then also gives us a fragmented party caucus in the legislature, both of which polarization and fragmentation make it much harder to get things done. So the lack of competition, I think, of course, that impugns the fundamental democratic value of competitiveness. The fragmentation and polarization that results from gerrymandering then gives us a very problematic and unhealthy political discourse, particularly when it comes to trying to get things done in the legislature. So I would say that gerrymandering is actually not just a problem theoretically, but it makes a direct and powerful contribution to polarization and fragmentation, which are problems that people today are extraordinarily aware of. So how do political reformers go about ending gerrymandering if it's such a problem? Well, you know, that is, that's the question. That's the 60,000, the 60 million, the $1 million question. There are 
two potential avenues of reform. Actually, technically, there are three. Like One of them is that the state legislatures, which are currently in control of the districting process, can decide to create some kind of nonpartisan process, an independent redistricting commission that redraws the map when the census says that you have to redraw the lines because the districts aren't the same size anymore. The legislature could turn over that power to an independent commission. That's theoretically possible, but extraordinarily unlikely. If you are somebody who controls a system and that system is working for you, you have zero incentive to change that system. The other two avenues that are available then are direct democracy, citizen initiatives to force a change in the way the districting process goes to yank it from the hands of the elected officials who currently control it and put it in the hands of people who don't have an interest in gerrymandering. And that is definitely a very promising avenue for reform. In fact, that's the way that gerrymandering has been ended in a number of states so far, and that's the avenue that reformers are pursuing in a lot of other states. The problem with that avenue is that it's only available in about half the states. In the other half of the states, there is not an avenue of direct democracy whereby the citizens of that state can say to the politicians, hey, we don't think you should be in charge of drawing the very map that you run in. So that leaves the third avenue, which is the judicial avenue. Courts could say, this is an unconstitutional practice, and we're going to end it. We're going to either force a state to adopt some kind of independent process, or more likely, courts will have an oversight role in the kinds of maps that the partisan legislatures draw. They will say, hey, these districts aren't fair. You have to draw lines in a way that's more fair, creates more competition, doesn't favor one party or the other. In fact, doesn't even if it's a bipartisan gerrymander, it doesn't favor a high number of uncompetitive seats. Courts have been reluctant to step into this process, and in fact, the Supreme Court declined to declare partisan gerrymandering unconstitutional and essentially slammed the door shut for the time being and for really the foreseeable future on the judicial avenue for ending reform. So political reformers are now forced to fight state by state, and only in half of the states is there a direct democratic avenue. Well, I was going to ask you what you think the prospects for addressing gerrymandering in the United States are, but it sounds like you've already answered that question. Do you think that there's anything more to say there? Well, yeah, you know, even in the half the states where there is direct democracy, and about a third of those have already used citizen initiatives to create independent districting commissions, in the other two-thirds, it's just a matter of political resources. And what you then have to do in those states, and Oregon is one of those states that currently has a very partisan gerrymandered system. The Democratic Party controls both houses of the state legislature as well as the Democratic governor. There's no impediment to a thoroughly Democratic gerrymander in the state of Oregon. There is, of course, for reformers, an easy fix. Let's have an independent commission. The obstacle to that is the Democratic Party's hold over the political system in Oregon. Obviously, they're not going to do this through the state legislature, but Democrats also have an interest in making it difficult for a citizen initiative to, one, get on the ballot, and two, to win the 50% of the votes that it needs. And even when it gets on the ballot, there will be an argument to be made to the many Democrats in the state of Oregon that, hey, Republicans do this in other states. They control the state legislatures in states that don't have direct democracy. Will it not tilt the playing field in the favor of Republicans by taking away one of our strongly gerrymandered democratic states? So the establishment in both parties has an interest in stopping these ballot measures. And Democrats, actually, because the states that have direct democracy tend to lean more democratic and the states that don't have it tend to be more Republican, Democrats in states like Oregon have an argument to the voters that we don't want to play fair because the other side's not playing fair. That, I would say, it limits the likelihood that we're going to get a thoroughly independent districting system throughout the United States. In the many states that have direct democracy, the movement for independent redistricting commissions is actually moving forward quite effectively. You've talked about the problems that gerrymandering creates, so I would like to end the interview by asking you, are there any new problems that might get introduced by ending gerrymandering, or perhaps old problems that could get worse? That is a really great question. Usually in these reform movements, the proponents only look at the problems that we're going to get rid of and not the potentially new problems that we're going to create. I would say the biggest problem that gets created by ending gerrymandering is competitiveness in politics means two things for elected officials. One, it means they have to spend more time 
getting reelected. They have to spend more time campaigning. And that takes them away from the job they're elected to do, which is to legislate. So if you're elected to the House of Representatives and you have to come back in front of the electorate every two years, you have theoretically two years to legislate. But really, if you're in a competitive seat, you're going to spend half of those two years campaigning and raising money so that you can win in your competitive seat. If you're in a safe seat, you can spend the vast majority of your time legislating because you know that really you're not going to have to face a competitive race. So the job of a legislator is divided between campaigning and doing the job that they campaign to be able to do. With more competitive seats, there's going to be a shift in how much time is spent on the campaign trail and how much time there is spent doing the legislating. And I mentioned raising money, and that's actually, I would say, the second and bigger problem with ending gerrymandering, which is if money already has an outsized role in our political system, the more competitive seats that you have, the more of a role money is going to play. The more outside groups, wealthy individuals, well-funded organizations, the more power they're going to have over our electoral system that is going to be highly competitive and therefore highly expensive. Now, there is an answer to that problem, which is campaign finance reform, which is a separate but linked way of making sure that elections are actually more competitive, not just that we have more competitive seats by ending gerrymandering, but that we have actual competition, not that we have a tilted playing field where the wealthiest candidates and the people who appeal to well-funded organizations are more likely to win. So there's a linkage between ending gerrymandering and campaign finance reform. But you will never change the problem that the more competitive seats you have, the more time elected officials are going to have to spend on the campaign trail, and that leaves them less time to legislate. The upside is, I'll answer, like maybe you're thinking this question, I'm thinking it, well, is there a benefit to candidates spending more time campaigning than they are legislating? There's two benefits. One is that, yes, it connects them with their constituents more. And so even though it takes them away from the legislative process, the job that we elected them to do, it keeps them more connected to the people. And the second thing is, back to what I mentioned earlier, is that more competitive seats mean that we're going to have probably more moderate members of the two parties getting elected. When you have a legislature that's more full of moderates, they're going to be more likely to compromise with people in the other party, and that actually simplifies the legislative process. It does involve, you know, compromise involves a lot of talking and a lot of deal making, but it means that you can sit down and actually get something done. And so if you have more moderate candidates who are winning and therefore elected officials who are interested in compromise and problem solving. And those candidates, because they're in a competitive seat, have to pay more attention to the people, then they're going to be more responsive. And I think that's ultimately the goal of all of the political reforms that are sort of big right now, is to make our system of government more responsive to the interests, the concerns, the fears, the problems of the people, so that we actually have a government that reflects what it is the people want. In recent years, a number of states have been taking action to change their redistricting process to eliminate or reduce gerrymandering. In this next segment, we hear a report on Michigan's Independent Redistricting Commission, created by a citizen initiative in that state that passed in 2018 and was first implemented during the 2020 redistricting process. In 2018, Michigan passed an amendment to their state constitution establishing an independent citizens redistricting commission. There are no experience or education requirements to apply to be on Michigan's redistricting committee. Instead, the qualifications revolve around ensuring that potential candidates would not directly benefit from any maps that were passed and ensuring the committee's independence. Being a candidate for elected office or having been elected to a partisan office, being involved in the governing body of a political party, being a consultant to a campaign or a PAC, being a legislative employee, being a lobbyist, or being certain types of state employees all can disqualify you, as can being an immediate family member of any of these disqualified categories. If you're disqualified for running from a elected office, 
you are also disqualified from participation on the committee. All interested Michigan voters could apply and 13 commissioners were selected at random from the pool. This selection is mostly random, but the candidates are first sorted into Republican, Democrat, and Independent pools. There are four candidates selected each from the Republican and Democrat pools and five candidates from the Independent pool for a total of 13 commissioners. The Michigan Constitution lays out several criteria that the commissioners must comply with in order to draw their maps. They are as follows. The districts must be compliant with the U.S. Constitution, the Voting Rights Act, and any other relevant federal laws. The districts will be geographically contiguous. The districts shall reflect the state's diverse population and communities of interest. This one will be important later. The district shall not give a disproportionate advantage to any political party. The district shall not favor or disfavor incumbents. Districts shall not, uh, the, sorry, the district shall consider city, county, and township boundaries. They shall also be reasonably compact. Like most other states, Michigan's redistricting process ran behind schedule, which in Michigan was a constitutionally mandated schedule, due to a combination of general COVID-19 struggles and the delay of the release of the 2020 census information by the federal government. Because of this, the commission had to cut back on its public comment periods. They had initially intended to have eight public hearings, but settled on the constitutionally required five comment hearings in order to maximize available time for the map drawing once they actually had the same census data. To help mitigate this and still get as much public input as possible, an online comment portal was also established where citizens could comment and provide feedback to the commissioners. The commissioners were also allowed to hire a professional map drafter who, in addition to drawing the lines as directed, was allowed to advise the commission should the commissioners desire. The actual process went relatively smoothly and with little controversy until very near the end. The commissioners held a closed-door meeting discussing the Voting Rights Act and its implications on the maps in, on October 27, 2021. Many argued this violated the constitutional mandate that the commission's business must be conducted in public. However, as the commission submitted their three final drafts for public comment less than a week later, there was no time to address this prior, prior to the maps being drawn. While Michigan's Attorney General advised commissioners to disclose any materials, notes, etc. from the meeting, the commissioners elected to follow the advice of their attorney and not release the information in a 7-5 vote. Five days later, a Michigan news organization filed lawsuit against the commission over the refusal to disclose this information. The Supreme Court of Michigan ruled the commissioners needed to reveal the information and required that they disclose the requested memos. Additionally, the state legislature responded by passing a bill that explicitly codified that the Independent Redistricting Commission was not allowed to meet in closed session for any reason. On December 28, 2021, the commissioners voted to adopt the map draft called Chestnut as the official maps on an 8-5 vote that met the constitutional requirement that the maps receive both a majority of votes and votes from two Democratic, two Republican, and two Independent commissioners. There was near-immediate backlash. Michigan civil rights advocates pointed out that the maps significantly decreased minority districts at all levels and would cause Black candidates to face substantial hurdles to being elected. They further argued that this meant these maps directly violate the provision that the maps should consider the state's diversity and communities of interest. Fifteen black leaders and lawmakers from Detroit, most of them Democrats, filed suit against the commission. State Republicans also later filed suit against the redistricting commission for the same violations. Both of these cases are still awaiting rulings. What makes this controversy especially interesting is that, on the surface, these appear to be very fair maps drawn by an independent citizens commission with no partisan advantage. The Princeton gerrymandering project gave the chestnut maps the commission adopted an overall grade of A with an A for partisan fairness and C's in both competitiveness and geographical features. 
Similarly, 538 highlights that the maps have very high efficiency ratings, meaning one party's voters are not packed into few districts, and that the partisan lean of the districts is near indistinguishable from that of the state as a whole. However, when you drill further into the Princeton gerrymandering project's analysis, you can see that only two districts have a 40-50% to 50% black voter population, and none are over 50%. While seeing that both Democrats and Republicans are upset and suing over the maps could at surface level be seen as evidence that the maps are fair, it does appear that the commission did put a lower priority on ensuring minority representation than it did in other objectives. As while they achieved quite good metrics in other areas, minority representation is an obvious weak point of the new maps. What remains to be seen is if the courts will agree that the commission did its best to balance all of the sometimes conflicting goals, or if the courts will rule that the commission did not go far enough in ensuring minority representation. If the courts uphold these maps, they will impact Michigan's elections until the next redistricting in several ways. First, as highlighted by the ongoing lawsuits, Michigan may experience a decrease in BIPOC lawmakers and elected officials if it turns out that the current concerns are warranted. Michigan would also likely be very reactive to changing political winds under these new maps. Because many districts are highly competitive and there's not a lot of district packing going on even in the safe districts, as wins turn against either party, it will be easier for the opposing party to win elections. And in times of very even support, it is likely that Michigan will have a relatively even split of Democratic and Republican elected officials. Both the reaction to these maps and the potential future impacts on Michigan elections highlight the difficulties of creating fair maps, even given a system that seems designed to make doing so easier. The Applied Political Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by the students and professor in PS419, Political Reform, a political science class at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. All content is the opinion of the individual creators and not of the professor, the university, or the political science department. Michigan isn't the only state with an independent redistricting commission. As of this recording, eight other states have similar commissions, including Arizona and California, which both adopted this reform before Michigan did. A number of other states are working towards this goal, including Oregon, which attempted to get a measure on the ballot in 2020. In this next segment, I interview Candle and Johnson, campaign coordinator for the League of Women Voters of Oregon and deputy campaign manager for People Not Politicians, a campaign that attempted to bring an independent redistricting commission to Oregon. While this interview doesn't focus solely on that campaign, it gives us insight into the mindset of a dedicated political reformer putting some of her time and energy into a specific reform effort. Note that this interview was conducted in February 2020 and was originally aired on the Pothole Problem podcast. Welcome to the show, Candlin. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. How would you characterize your role in the political world? It's very new. I graduated from OSU in 2017, so I've only been out of college for a few years now. And even when I graduated, I didn't really know what my role in politics was because when I was at OSU, I thought I wanted to be a lobbyist or run for office or work as a staffer. And then I interned with the Oregon Students Association as a lobbyist and I hated it. So I got done with political science and I said, you know, I don't really fit into partisan politics. I don't identify with either party. I, I mean, I tell people I felt like I had to pretend to be someone I wasn't to be able to get anywhere. And I also am not a city gal. When I first graduated, all of the jobs were in Portland and I didn't have an ability to get to Portland. I didn't want to live in Portland. It was going to be very stressful for me. And so I almost said, well, I guess politics isn't for me because all of the jobs are in Portland. Nobody cares about the fact that I don't want to live in a city. So I guess I'm not going to apply for jobs in Portland. And I was having a really hard time. And that's why I ended up doing a year in AmeriCorps because I just needed some time after college to figure out what I wanted to do next. And after I got done serving in AmeriCorps, I found the league. They had this position open and I originally actually applied just to be like an office specialist. They looked at my looked at me and they said, we would like you to run our redistricting campaign. 
And I said, okay, that sounds fun. Let's do it. Uh, because I, I've always been more passionate about issues and less about parties uh, and party interests because I find that issues connect people from all spectrums of parties. And so redistricting I loved because it was a multipartisan issue. And I'm really passionate about issues and nonprofit work and things that actually make me feel like I'm in the community. And when I was getting really involved in politics and I was, a, I was on the board of directors for the Oregon Students Association and I was in the Capitol lobbying for students, I actually started to feel less connected with the community. And it may be because I'm still fairly young and building my own community connections and, and community connections. And so I felt kind of isolated. And I said, you know, I need to take a step back and get involved in the community. I need to be in the ground. I need to, to be there um, and build my connections, build my community before I go back to conventional politics. So I can see why you would have not found it compelling to be a lobbyist if you're more issue-oriented than uh, mm -hmm. partisan-oriented. What started you, what activated you as a young person to think of politics as a place that you wanted to be? I grew up very, very poor. I grew up in a very small town, rural town. Um, my family is still very, very poor, and I'm the oldest of all of uh, the kids. I was taught very quickly from a young age that if I wanted to get out, I needed to find community. I needed to be involved. I needed to get involved in community service. I needed to ask for things. I needed to do things. And I needed to convince people that I was worth it. And so I got involved in community service at a very young age, uh, starting in high school, and knew that I loved politics. I loved community service. And I viewed getting involved in politics as a way to serve the community. And that was my, I guess, philosophical view of politics when I first started as a freshman in college was that I loved politics because I loved the idea of serving the community. I loved the idea of working on issues that impact people, improving people's lives, and being there for others. I guess that's why when I went through and I really started getting involved in it, I needed that community connection because community service is what got me in it to begin with. So what was it about lobbying and other types of political activity that made you feel like you weren't serving the community? It was the partisan politics of it, especially after 2016. It was really, really hard not identifying with a party because if you don't identify as a Democrat or you don't identify as a Republican and they're just down each other's throats. And I just, uh, a lot of the opportunities, I think the connections I made were all really, really strong Democrats. And when I, they found out that I wasn't registered Democrat, that I wasn't, I didn't have all of their ideals, that I wasn't sure about some of the things. And I think one of the parts of politics that fascinates me is I almost think there's never a right answer. Everyone has something that's right. Even if I don't really agree with their end, their end opinion, there's something in it that made that opinion that I understand. And so I got so deep in like the philosophical question of, I just lost myself and I, I started to think, well, what do I even believe? I don't think like they do because I'm not 100% sure that is the right way to go. I was lobbying for things and then I was like, but do I actually believe this? Or is this just how I'm making connections? I didn't want to confuse the two. I didn't want to do something just because I felt like I had to do it to keep my connections. I wanted to do it because I believed in it and I believed it was truly going to help students because I was lobbying for students at the time. And I started to lose that. And I, I wasn't sure if what I was doing was actually helping students or what I was doing was making a difference or even if I believed in it. And so I decided I'd take a step back and, and really develop and hone down what are the things that I'm really passionate about and what are the things that I really want to advocate for. If I'm making connections, they need to be connections that I feel are, are for me or part of my community that I can be a part of. And if I'm feeling like I have to pretend to be someone I'm not in order to keep that connection, then maybe that's not the right connection for me. So you didn't feel comfortable saying I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, and that was challenging to be politically active in lobbying. Did you find that a lot of other people who you knew who were politically active had a similar problem that you did? Or, or did you see a high level of comfort with adopting a party label and a party brand? I think that the people who are uncomfortable with adopting a party label are the ones that are uncomfortable being in politics right now. A lot of people that I talk to who don't vote, 
who haven't voted, who feel that politics isn't for them or that politics is too, or, you know, there's always this, oh, I don't get involved in politics. I don't, I don't do politics. And I always tell them, well, you can't not do politics. Politics does you if you don't do politics. So hone in on what your interests are. And I actually, I'm really proud of this. I convinced my partner who hadn't voted in like 10 years to vote for the first time just this last election. And I sat him down and I said, what do you care about? You own a house now. Do you care about taxes? Do you care about reproductive rights? What are some things that you're really passionate about? And then I had him connect that with the candidates, not the party, not what was going on, because that's how I connect. And it worked for him too, because he also doesn't really identify with a party. And I said, well, if you don't want to be Democrat, and you don't want to be Republican, and you feel politics is too complicated, then narrow it down. Find the issue you understand and find people who also understand that and vote for them. I really like that. If you don't do politics, politics does you. Yeah. And that is a hard thing to actually convey to people. And it seems like that's part of what you're doing right now is you're trying to do that kind of outreach to convince people. You don't have to have a ready-made party label or brand or identity. You can be as uncomfortable in the party as I am. That doesn't mean that you have to opt out. Right. And I'm very honest with people. I'm very honest, honestly, a little too honest sometimes. People are like, whoa, Candlin, too much information, too honest. But I'm very honest with people about how I feel about politics. And, you know, I say, you know what, if you don't want to vote for the president because you feel your vote for president doesn't matter, that's fine. I kind of agree with you. In Oregon, it doesn't. We know the Democrats are going to win in Oregon for the presidency. So, okay, let's talk about your impact for the governor or your impact for the Secretary of State run. Your vote really does make a difference for local elections, and so I try to find a way to connect that with people and try to make politics seem less scary by connecting it with an issue that they understand and that they care about and realizing that everything is politics. This is, seems like a good time to ask the question I ask all my guests, which is, what is something that used to outrage you and no longer does? And most importantly, why do you think that changed? It took me a long time to answer this question. I started asking everyone. I have three jobs. I have lots of hats. And I went around asking everyone this question. I was like, I was asked this question and it's so hard. And I'm, I just, every answer I've thought of doesn't seem right because I'm still angry about a lot of things. And one of the common responses I got from lots of my co coworkers, and honestly, a lot of them were a few decades older than me, were, you know, Candlin, you need to not be angry about everything. You're going to get burnt out. You don't need to argue with everyone because I get in arguments with everyone. You don't need to be angry about everything. You're going to get just burnt out. You're going to get tired. What I saw was that they were tired and that they were burnt out and that they decided that it wasn't worth getting angry, which I think is a mature decision, but also a sign that they were burnt out by all the things that were going on and they just kind of gave up on moving forward with it because they couldn't emotionally deal with what was going on. Politics can be extremely draining. It's very draining. It's very draining. I have lots of friends who are super burnt out, who are super drained. They become very jaded and they kind of lose connection with why they even did it in the first place. And I saw that happening to me and I got scared and I booked it up. So uh, what I finally decided on was uh, identity politics. I grew up in a small town and when I first heard the words white privilege, I was extremely mad and irritated. I said, how dare you call me privileged? Do you know anything about the way I grew up? I had to fight for every single resource that I have. I'm not privileged. It took me a while to realize that they weren't saying that I didn't have struggles, that I didn't have issues that I didn't have my own types of oppression. What they were saying is that none of that oppression was because I'm white. That finally clicked because I feel like identity politics and just exploring your identity as a young adult, you just kind of get this light bulb, you get this click in your head and you just understand that, oh, okay, that's just one part of me. And they're telling me that not only do I need to think of that part, but how all of the other parts influence my life experience and the way I impact others and the way that others impact me and my work. Everything about my identity is intersectional and it impacts my perspectives and my view on, the light, on my life. Now 
I don't get mad anymore, and I have a completely different opinion. You don't get mad when someone says you have white privilege. No, I don't. Or, or you don't get mad in general about the notion of identity politics. Exactly. Both of those. Yeah, because okay. at first I was very defensive, and I find that happens a lot with white folks who grew up in a very conservative uh, rural town. As they say, I'm not privileged. You don't know anything about me. It took me a lot of self-awareness, a lot of exploring, a lot of very deep personal identity exploration to understand and accept privilege for what it is. And now when someone says, hey, you need to examine your white privilege, I say, you're, you're totally right. I didn't see the context. Thank you so much for calling me out. And I, I move forward and I'm okay with being called out. And I know that as a white person that I still need to every day evaluate my biases and I need to evaluate my perspective. How am I making this decision or how am I viewing this person automatically because of my life experiences? I grew up in a town that maybe had three people of color, right? I'm going to have biases without even trying to, without even meaning to, because we just, we have bias. And just because you have a bias doesn't make you a bad person. That's what I tell people. I say everyone has bias. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a human to have bias. What makes you a bad person is when you pretend that they don't exist and you don't try to make yourself better. It sounds like to get over this outrage at being called out for your biases, you did a lot of introspection and reflection and self-growth. What got you to undertake that process? Because that process clearly got you to the place you are now, but what started that process and what sustained you in that process? So when I first joined the Oregon Students Association, they actually have three boards. Uh, one is the board of directors, which is usually folks in the student government in the legislative affairs, um, student body presidents, those kinds of things, which I served in both roles throughout my college career. And then there's the people of color board, and then there's the equal rights board. That's not the name of it, but it's like the LGBTQ plus board. They would have closed caucus spaces and all of these wonderful opportunities for folks to be able to come together with like-minded identities and talk about the issues they face as Oregonians. And I still didn't understand. I said, I want to learn. I want to open my perspectives. I don't understand why you're saying because I'm white, I can't be in this space. And I got defensive again because I was trying to explore. I was trying to listen and they wouldn't let me. And I didn't really understand it at all until I went to a low income caucus space. And there was a person in there who started talking. And the first thing they said was, I'm not low income, but I totally understand what you're going through. And just started taking up the space. And I was outraged. I was like, get out of here. Who are you? Leave. And I finally clicked and it clicked like, okay, that's how everyone else feels when a white person in the room is like, I just want to learn and I just want to listen. And they're like, well, I just want a space where there's not a white person telling me I need to educate them. So that started you down the path. You realized, okay, I have to really start digging into myself and what my biases are. Exactly. Because I realized that I really wasn't looking at other people's perspectives. I wasn't thinking about their life experiences and their need to be with like-minded folks during some times, that not every person needs to educate you, that you need to educate yourself. It's your responsibility to do so. It was silly to me that I had to go through a year-long process of discovering that when I am extremely passionate about self-education and I had to go find my own resources. But then all of a sudden I expected people of color to go find those resources for me. Right? It was just kind of a flip and I realized this isn't who I am. This isn't who I should expect other people to be. Why am I suddenly changing my own philosophy just because I'm uncomfortable? That's a really great exploration and I, I want to move now to sort of the flip side is what is something or some things that still outrage you or that outrage you anew or freshly? Because mm -hmm. it sounds like you have a lot of passion about your work and about issues. What are some of the outrages that you have right now that you're not over? I think one of the big ones that I thought of was just the lack of empathy in politics. I have two sides of this. I always have two sides, which is why it's so hard for me. I understand that sometimes some people, especially with how politics can be so deeply personal, they can't just sit and calmly have a 
quote-unquote political debate and deal with the devil's advocate when it's so deeply personal to them. And people, I think, don't have empathy and understand that about politics. They don't understand that for a lot of people, especially people who are disenfranchised, people who are dealing with a lot of different struggles and a lot of just stuff that's going on, that politics is very personal and they can't just sit calmly and debate with you and educate you on their all of the struggles they're facing and they, they shouldn't have to. So the lack of empathy prevents people from having political discussions that are at the same time personal and productive. Right. The reason why I say on the flip side is what really bothers me is there's lack of empathy on both sides. I see people blaming someone who is getting very emotional. They're at the point of screaming because they can't objectively talk about something that they're personally impacted by. The person starts blaming them for not being able to have a conversation with them and call, say that they just are out of line. And then there's the other side where people just close their mind and they don't want to even hear that person's story when they are able to be vulnerable and open up. And so people who are sharing their stories, who are opening up, just cutting open a wound and spilling it out for people to hear, and they're just shut off. It hurts me to see that. It hurts me to see that when someone does decide, I'm gonna be vulnerable, I'm going to share my personal experiences and how that impacts my view of politics, and someone says, that's not the way I lived, I don't think that exists. So what do you think is a way forward to spread more empathy into the political world, and I mean, just into the world of regular human beings who are impacted by politics? What can get more empathy into the discourse? I think part of the reason why we start to lose empathy is when we start to lose ourselves a little bit. Um, I see a lot of people when they get really burnt out and you start to see some of those signs as a lack of empathy. You see people starting to not be able to have time or the emotional energy to deal with other people's emotional energy. And so there's that. If you start to see yourself not being able to be understanding, to not be able to sit there and control your biases and think about other people's perspectives, that's a pretty good sign that you're burnt out yourself. So I think self-care in politics is very, very important. And the only way we can have self-care is by having self-awareness having the ability to be aware of yourself, aware of your emotional energy, and be aware of where you are is very, very important in politics and in life. Because I think when we lose empathy, it's because we are losing ourselves and we're not taking care of ourselves. So you mentioned earlier the burnout problem and the people that you know who've been in politics for a long time seem to you to be burned out and that sounds like it results in a loss of empathy. You're a relatively young person what is your plan to have a sustainable presence in the political world and to take care of yourself so that you can have the empathy that you've identified as an important component of the healthy political discourse? What are you going to do? Yeah, and that's the part that's really hard because for anyone who knows me, they kind of see me as someone who can't make up their mind as to what they want to do because part of me loves politics and never wants to leave. But the other part of me finds it to be an unsustainable lifestyle for who I am. When I was looking at internships and those kinds of things, we're just now starting to have conversations like, oh, people getting internships in DC should probably get paid. I was being offered, I think, 3,000 for six months as a scholarship. How is a low-income person with no family support supposed to be able to afford moving to DC and working for free, nine to five, and having no political connections there? There's that. And I have to work for a living. I've, I've got to take care of myself. I have to feel like I have a job and I have income coming in. And the fact that a lot of politics is very, very uh, short term, and then you have to keep applying for jobs over and over again. And the fact that all of the jobs are in cities has been very, very draining for me. Um, and so that's why I almost gave up on politics until I found this campaign and I'm able to stay in my rural city area and still be involved but I have a job at a nonprofit and they're offering me a full-time job with benefits at the end of June. 
I can't say no to that. And is that a politically oriented nonprofit? It's not. It's not. It's it's a it's a an animal shelter where I get to run community based programs and be out in the community doing co- preventative community education. Part of me loves that, and still feels that it's not necessarily not politics, right? When you're out there doing that preventative education, preventing crisis, and, and helping people, and providing services for folks, and I realized that maybe I was never really interested in just implementing policy, but also with just the government services side of things, being the person who's implementing programs that actually help people, and going more the bureaucracy side. And when I first told my dad that, he's like, oh, so you're going to be a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that the official political world, what people would identify as politics with a capital P, is not the only way to do politics and that community service can come in a number of different forms. And you're finding your place. Do you think that official capital P politics is probably going to wash you out pretty quickly into one of these other endeavors? My main goal is to keep building connections in in my community, feel a part of the community. And I think that I will get more involved in conventional politics once I have that support behind me. As of right now, it's very, very difficult to do conventional politics without a lot of network and support. And I don't have that right now because I'm still very young and I'm still building that from scratch. So, you know, people ask me, oh, are you going to run for office? Are you going to are you going to do other things? And I say, maybe I'm not saying no, I'm not ready right now. I don't have the support. I don't have the people behind me to do that. And I can't do it by myself. You know, that's why not only do I have three jobs, but I also volunteer my time for a crisis line. And I'm trying my best to to really feel integrated into a community before I even consider being a representative for them. I like that, getting integrated into the community instead of official conventional politics being an either or thing. I either am or am not in it. Mm -hmm. You're introducing a perspective that says, well, you can increasingly integrate yourself with the community and that will either create opportunities to run for office or to help run a campaign or not, but that you're doing good for the community. You're actually changing people's lives, listening to them, being involved in these debates about issues. Mm -hmm. That you don't have to go into capital P politics to do politics in a way that benefits your spirit. And what I usually find is politics finds you because you can't escape politics. And so even if I'm not in capital P politics, I still am. Opportunities have a way of presenting themselves. And I would feel better taking on those opportunities when people feel that I'm with them, that I've been there, that I've been involved, that I've heard people's stories. And I want to do that before I run for anything, before I consider myself to be a representative for anyone. That's a great perspective, and I want to thank you for coming in and talking to me. This has been a fascinating interview. Yeah, thank you. 